0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So where we've been is at the end of the Gospel of John, one of the four biographies of Christ's life. And he is now within hours of going to the cross, being uh, falsely accused, humiliated, beaten, beaten, crucified and taking the the punishment, the wrath of God for the sins of all the world upon himself. He is facing the, the ultimate challenge. And so he spends his last few hours with sort of the inner circle of disciples, the people that he spent the most time with, and the people that he's preparing for them to carry on the work. He knows and he predicts, in our passage, in John 15 and 16, that he's going to be resurrected. It's not that he's going to cease to exist. But his relationship with them and the the work that he's been doing has been to prepare these people to carry on that work. And he's going to be empowering them in a new way, but he's not going to be with them bodily anymore. And so we're in a very concentrated time of his preparing his disciples. Two weeks ago, we talked about how he was explaining to them through the allegory of, I am the vine and you are the branches, you know, that you are need to take your spiritual life, your energy, the motivation, you know, to do this work is going to come as a result of your ability to abide in me, to connect with me. You just need to be connected with me, and I will take care of everything else. And then, And what we're studying this morning in chapters 15 and 16 he's moving on into really explaining to them in very blunt ways the core of the mission and preparing them for what to expect that he's saying you know this thing that we're doing it's about love it's about loving God it's about loving others and that it's going to be hard it's not going to be an easy thing for you to do it hasn't been easy for me and you're going to be picking up the work that I'm doing and carrying it on. And I want you to be ready for that. So we turn to John 15 verse 12, and he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone may lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends if you do what I command. You know, he's saying this Poignantly, as he's preparing to go and do this very thing. And he says, look, the heart of what this is all about, I mean, if you've been with us, you know that he's repeating again and again and again, what is God about? What does it mean to be a follower of God? What is Christ about? What does it mean to be a Christian? The answer is clearly and equivocally, love. That's how he wants them to understand. What is the mission? The mission is love. He said it earlier in, in an equally poignant way, just a couple chapters before in John 13, 34. He said, a new commandment I give to you. Right? What's the language of that? Right? We're all familiar with the Ten Commandments. Right? It's like he's saying, I'm giving you, a, this is number 11. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. What is supposed to be the detecting mechanism, right? When you look out into the world and you see different people groups, you know, they tend to represent different things. And he's saying, "I want people when they look at you to look at your love and re- and realize that person must be a Christian. They're so loving. That's what those people are about. And we have these meaningful associations. You know, it's not super popular, you know, to uh, make broad generali- generalizations about groups. But you know, the Grateful Dead, Deadheads, hippies, right?" They follow the Grateful Dead around. They're hippies. They're about free love. That's that's what you associate with the Grateful Dead, right? Is they follow the band and they have these you know great big um, shows and these guys are groupies and what they're about is following the Grateful Dead. Well, that's what they were about here, right? Uh, These guys, what are they about? They're about evil. They're about hate. They're about Holocaust. Right? They're about racism. So, you know, when you think, when you see these symbols, it calls to mind generalities about that group. And what we're being told by Jesus is that there's a very specific thing that should come into people's mind when they think about his followers. And we should ask ourselves, what are the defining characteristics of a Christian? When you go out into the world and you ask people, what do you think of when you think of Christ, when you think of Christians, when you think of the Bible, what are the first words that pop into your head? And we can kind of judge how we're doing by the way that people would answer that question, I think. There's a group um, called Lifetree. They host these online spiritual conversations. This is actually just a promo video, where they, but they went out and they interviewed people and uh, asked them that question, what do you think of when you think of Christians? And um, this is a short little video talking about what they found. What we did was we surveyed 16 to 29 year olds. We wanted to know what did the high school students, college 20 somethings, what were their feelings about Christians? 91 percent, the first perception they had of Christians were that we were anti-homosexual. 87 percent that we were judgmental. 85 percent hypocritical. You know, 75 percent that we were too involved in politics. Uh, Seven out of ten believe that as Christians, the only thing we cared about was trying to get people saved. That we were proselytizers. We didn't really care about them. People who are outside the Christian faith, when they look at Christians or they hear you for the first time, introduce yourself as a Christian. These perceptions are the major roadblocks to them ever even wanting to consider a conversation. So judgmental, hypocritical, anti-homosexual, too involved in politics. I'm sure love was the next one, (laughs) right? It was number five. I mean, I don't know how they did this study. I I don't know how scientific it was. I don't know, you know. But I will say, and I think if we're honest with each other, we have to say with tears that this is probably pretty accurate, especially with younger people in our culture, but, you know, with older people as well. People who are not involved in church typically think of people who are involved in church this way. What are the defining characteristics of Jesus' followers? Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And we can sort of judge how we're doing as a group by the answers that we're seeing here. And I think that as Christians, we have to take some personal responsibility in this. We have to be motivated to say, you know, there is something that we can do. You know, no, individually, we can't change the perception of the world, but you can and I can change the perception of the people who are in our lives. That's something that we can do. The people at our office, the people in our families, the people in our neighborhoods, we can do something about that. And doing nothing, just staying aloof, is not going to cut it. Because there's a loud voice putting forward a certain picture of what it means to be a biblical Christian, and it's a very negative picture. Mahatma Gandhi is said to have said, there's some debate about whether or not he actually said this, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians, your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And that's a sentiment that uh, has been attributed to him, but then it's been repeated over and over and over again because so many people resonate with that. I've seen this bumper sticker, Jesus, save me from your followers. Yeah. As a pastor, I've been very tempted to put it on my car, but I think I might send the wrong idea. This is a powerful sentiment that's out there. Many of us here were not raised in the church. Many of us here found faith later in life, and many of us had these exact preconceptions about Christians. And what we learned was that the Jesus of the Bible and that the people who are serious about following the Jesus of the Bible are not what we've seen in the mainstream media, are not the picture that we had in our heads or even the experience of some of the Christians or the people claiming to be Christian that we had interacted with. They didn't seem anything like Jesus. And yet we have begun to follow and learn and actually see what Jesus taught. And we've become in contact with people who are not very much like Jesus, but they're earnest in becoming more like Jesus. And they're able to say, I am far from the goal, but here is where I'm headed And that has become a compelling story that has begun to erode and take down some of the negative presuppositions that we had about what it means to be a follower of Christ. But how has this happened? How is it that so much of our culture, that so much of the world has this view? Jesus, his teachings, his character, his nature are clearly laid out in the scriptures. And it is so clear that God has said, I am about love, loving me, loving one another. I'm about community. I'm about forgiveness. I'm about mercy. I'm about connecting people to each other. It's the reason that you were made. And we say, you know, to to be a Christian is to be a follower of Christ, and Christ says, the most important thing that you can do to represent me to the world is to be a loving person. How has it gotten so far off track? Well, through history, there have been many who have tried to hijack Jesus' movement. Whenever you get a big group of people together that are really sold out and really excited about, you know, giving their lives to something, you know, there are people that come along and say, well, if we can just tweak that a little bit, maybe we can use this for our benefit. Maybe we can get all that energy and all that manpower and all that, that those people thinking that they're serving God, but we can actually get them to serve us. And so in a lot of cases, you know, being what it is to be a Christian has been redefined. A lot of times it's redefined not in terms of what we are, but in terms of what we're not. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't cuss. I don't dance. I don't play cards. I don't gamble. I don't watch anything R-rated. And I don't wear fashionable clothing. (laughs) That's what it means to be a Christian. Look at me, look at my life, and look at all the things that I don't do... And sign up and come along. (laughs) And I don't associate people with who who do those things. That's where the self-righteous and the, the hypocritical and the judgmental thing says, I don't associate with people who don't agree with my moral values. And that's on one extreme, we're going to cloister ourselves in, and we're going to create our own neighborhoods, and our own schools, and our own music, and our own culture, and we're going to keep everybody who disagrees with us out, and we're going to protect everybody in from all the moral depravity that exists out there. And they think that's what it is to be a Christian, cutting yourself off from mainstream culture, And then there's the opposite extreme, which is, no, let's not do that. Let's go out and legislate Christian morality, take over, and make everybody else have to follow the rules that we believe in, the morality that we believe in, regardless of whether they believe it's true or not. It's the same kind of misallocation of focus one way or the other and the enemies of God love this they love if the middle line is love your neighbor as yourself love one another as I have loved you push them so far over here that they become irrelevant, strange and isolated from everybody else or push them so far over here that they're trying to dominate and control and make everybody else like them Either of those is an equally acceptable falsehood because it keeps them away from doing the thing that they're supposed to be doing, loving those who don't know God. That's what's happened. Jesus was confronted with this kind of thing all the time. The religious rulers, the Pharisees of his day, were very upset because he spent most of his time not hanging out with the separatists, And the people who were trying to take control, they had the same thing. They had the people that were like, let's just cut ourselves off and be separate from culture, and let's judge everybody and block them out. They were called the Essenes. And they had the people on the other extreme that were like, no, let's take control of the government and make everybody behave the way that we think they should behave, And Jesus said, no, I'm actually going to go and I'm going to spend my time with the people who don't know God. I'm going to spend my time with the people who are immoral. And Matthew 9, 11, the Pharisees were upset with this. They saw what was happening and they said to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came, to call, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He's like, I'm going to hang out with prostitutes and drunkards and traitors and sinners because those are the very people that I came to save. Does Christianity in our culture represent Christ? Christ. How are we supposed to be defined? Are we defined by what we aren't, by who we judge, who we exclude, who we condemn? Is that the message? Or are we defined by who we follow? That's the way it should be. And who we follow says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What a different world it would be if love, if we went out into the street and we said, what do you think about Christians? And they're like, oh, they're crazy. I don't, believe, I don't believe a lot of what they believe. But I gotta admit, they're loving people. Now, there are people who have had that experience, and you can find people who have had that experience. But there are far too few There aren't enough. And Jesus is saying it is the job of those who would come after him to represent him in this way. Part of the reason I think this happens is because, well, being evil just comes so easily to us. There's something broken in our nature. There's something deep in who we are. And judging people and condemning people and creating groups that exclude people and say, we're over here and we're better than those people over here. That is human nature. And the church is filled with human beings. Romans 3:10-12 says, "As it is written, there are none righteous; there are not even one. No one understands; no one seeks God. All have turned aside; together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one." I don't know how more poignantly or repetitively he could have put this for emphasis: the fact that we are broken, and even as Christians, we remain broken. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all other things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who is better at self-deception than us? You are the best at lying to you of anybody in your life. And this is how you can become a hateful isolationist who does not put forth the love of God and think you're being persecuted because of your love. This is how we can do this or this is how we can justify trying to force other people to agree what we agree through legislation. But that is to miss the focus. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus says, for from within, out of the the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveted, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, These are a few of my favorite things. (laughs) That's what's in our hearts. That's the unabashed root of fallen humanity right there. And he says all of these things come from within us. And all of these evil things come from within. And they defile the person. They, They ruin our lives. And yet we are desperately sick. And so being judgmental and being self-righteous is easy. It's far easier to separate, to judge, to hate, to discriminate, and to control. It's far easier to do that than it is to love. Love is hard. If you take the path of least resistance, even as a Christian, you will wind up in an evil place. Is it easier to judge somebody? You see somebody suffer. You go on the street and you see someone sitting on the curb crying. Is it easier to say, well, whatever they did, they probably deserve it. I shouldn't get involved. That looks messy. Or is it easier to walk up and say, what's wrong? How can I help? And to invite into your life whatever drama this stranger is having, which is easier. Love is hard. Jesus is saying it right here. Love is sacrificial. Love one another as I have loved you, he says, before climbing onto a cross and dying. Love one another as I have loved you. He spent his whole life poor on the streets, moving from town to town, telling people that God loves them, and having people wanting to kill him for it. Love one another as I have loved you. Consider the needs of others as more important than yourself. What could be more unnatural for us? To actually look around the room and say, the needs of these people are more important than my own. That's hard. That's a real challenge. To lay down your life for your friends. That's hard. And so if you're here and you're a skeptic and you're somebody that's been hurt and and frustrated and you've seen a lot of hypocrisy in the church, we understand, we have seen the same thing and we are not here to tell you, well, none of that is true. What we're here to tell you is what we're striving for is really hard. But we want to be in the fight. We want to to be accepting, we want to be loving, we want to fight against our human brokenness and embrace our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are on a journey and we are on it together and we are stumbling and limping and wounded, but we are here. And we are determined each day to become a little more like Jesus Christ we know that many Christians have earned this reputation by doing what has come easy there are also many who have been misled about what it means to follow Christ there's a whole ideology like we talked about a few minutes ago that's designed to confuse people about what it means to be a follower of Christ Much of what you see in the media, much of the impressions that you've been given, much of what you've heard people have said as representatives of Jesus Christ are from people that really don't understand or know what the Bible says. They're people that are trying to actively capture a people group, deceive them, and point them in a different direction for their own purposes. And many have fallen victim to this. Jesus warned us about this. Look at Matthew 7 15 through 17. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or fig from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Is this person bringing more love into the world? As a result of their efforts, are people understanding who God is and the love that God has for them? And is he helping them to understand that they are of value and that they are meaningful and important? That would be good fruit. Or are they leading people towards some other conclusion? He says in verse 21 of Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And we know what the will of his Father in heaven is, don't we? It's love. He just told us. A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. (coughs) The first and foremost commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so if you're not involved in love, then you don't know God. He's not saying you have to love perfectly. You have to love without fault. But you have to understand that the point of who God is and the point of our faith is love. And if there is no love in your heart for your fellow man and there is no love for God, then how can you know God? And there are going to be many people that are saying hey, you know, I was a Christian my whole life and I didn't do this and I didn't do that. I kept away from these things and I told these people that they were going to hell. And Jesus is going to be like, yeah, but you never took the time to get to know me. We don't know each other. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works for you? And he says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What is the law? Love one another as I have loved you. You claimed to know me, but you never knew love. And he says, beware of these false prophets who bear fruit that is not love because they will rise up among you and attempt to deceive you, but you can always tell by their fruit. He's saying, let your relationships, let your life, let your purpose, let what you do and let who you are be defined by love. This is how to carry on my work. I'm only gonna be here for a few more hours. I'm only gonna be among you this way, but if you stay with love, you will stay on track. On the one hand, it's so simple. Love others. And the mission will be accomplished. On the other hand, it's so hard. Because loving is not easy. But he's saying, this is how people will know that you're authentic. The stamp of authenticity of my followers is their love. But he also warns them verse 17 he says these things i commanded you so that you will love one another but if the world hates you know that it has hated me before it hated you if you are of the world the world would would love you as its own but because you are not of the world but i chose you out of the world therefore the world hates you do you see the dilemma go and love others love them as i have loved them love them as i have loved you And the fruit of your work is whether or not you love them. But that does not mean they will love you. They may hate you as you love them. How how does that work? The world hates you. Know that it has hated me. Jesus said, I'm all about love. But the world hates me. It's important that we understand there's a concept here in the Bible of this isn't the world in the sense of like the earth or necessarily the whole world. This, in the, in this word in the Greek is the world system. It's the cosmos. And it's pointing to a very specific system within the world that is hostile to God. It's a system that's designed to seduce us away, to take all this brokenness and all this fallenness and all this conflict within us and to encourage us towards selfishness and away from the things of God. And the Bible is very clear that this is something that's very real. There is an active element that is resistant to the things of God and actively trying to deceive others to keep them away from God. You can read about that in first john 5 19 through 20 we know that we are of god but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one and we know that the son of god has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son jesus christ this is the true god of eternal life but that the enemies of God are actively trying to deceive people into thinking that God is not loving and that they should worship themselves. 1 John 2, 16 and 17 tells us how to identify this. It says, for all that is in the world, meaning the cosmos, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away also its lusts but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The lust of the flesh, that deep desire for more. More food, more sex. That lust of the eye, that desire to look out and to, to take what other people have. To put ourselves to consider the needs of ourselves as more important than other people. That's the lie of the world system. You hear it all the time. Well, i got to love myself before I can love other people. Sounds so reasonable, doesn't it? You've got to love yourself before you can give love to anyone else. You've got to put yourself first or else you can't be generous. <laughs> it's diabolical. It's brilliant because it feeds right into what we want to believe is true, which is I'm number one and everybody else comes second. And Jesus comes along and says, how about you just give and give and give until you've got nothing left to give, and then you'll be full. And we're like, that doesn't sound right to me. I don't even know if I want to give that a try. The world system is about seducing people into thinking that God's values are bankrupt and they can become hostile to Jesus' values because they are under the deception of the enemies of God. These are the people that would say, How dare you say that I'm wrong? How dare you say that I'm selfish? How dare you say that I'm living for the wrong things? I decide what is right for me. And no one else can tell me anything about the way that I live. I will be my own God, judging right and evil for myself. And they believe that that is good and that is right and that is how everyone should live. But the reality is, is no one actually can live that way. Why? Because what we do has an impact on other people. This is why we have societies. This is why we have laws. Because if I just do what I think is right all the time, then that means that other people are going to suffer as a result, and they have rights too. We think, I don't need God or anyone else to tell me right from wrong. But then we become our own God by saying, I decide what is good and what is evil. So, the reality is, as a Christian, you can be hated as a hypocrite and a judger, a narrow minded excluder, or you can be hated as a true representative of God, a compassionate, caring person who wants to stand for truth. How's that for a sales pitch? It can be both. Peter warned about this in 1 Peter 4, 15 through 16. He says, but look, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, and I love this, or as a meddler. You see, I think a lot of Christians in our culture suffer as meddlers. We feel like we need to get involved in everybody else's business. He says, don't suffer from doing wrong to people. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Don't suffer because you're a jerk, because you treat people like crap, and then turn around and say, oh, I'm so persecuted, which is what a lot of us do. But if you're going to suffer, suffer for standing for the love of God and for truly caring and engaging with other people and standing for the truth. Jesus warns them carefully as he's about to depart, and he says, "Look closely at my example. John 15:12, 15, 15:20, 15, I'm sorry. Remember the word that I said to you, "As a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you." If they kept my word, they will keep your word also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. It's a brilliant illustration. He's saying, you know, uh, I'm God and look how they treated me. Don't expect better treatment than that. We have a tough hill to climb. There's a lot... It's, it's, it's intimidating. No wonder, you know, we decide, well, we'll just go cloister ourselves over here and protect ourselves and our children because it's so hard to think about weighing out into a world that may hate us and that certainly doesn't understand us. There are many false prophets who profane the name of God and deceive the world into thinking that God is about hate, And there are many people, many people who are offended, not just by the false picture, but they're also offended by the true picture of who God is. And so our part, our part is simply this. We have to understand, we have to be adamant, and we have to check ourselves on a daily basis to be sure that we remember that the people who hate us are not the enemy. It's not the people in the world system who are the enemy. In fact, they are the mission. They are the very ones that we are called to to move toward. Just like Jesus hanging out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes We are to move towards those who are deceived by the world system, who are angry at God, who are not understanding who God is, or understanding and angry. Move toward them with love the love of God, the love of Christ the truth of scripture. Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew 10:16, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Again, not a good sales pitch. <laughs> I send you out to be warm and fluffy and delicious <laughs> among a pack of carnivores. Yeah. <laughs> but be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Be wise, be cunning. But don't be evil. That's what he's saying. Matthew 10, 26 and 27, he says, Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not be afraid. I send you out as sheep among the wolves. I send you out to love the people who hate me. And I am going to die because these people are going to hate me so much. They're going to crucify me. But do not be afraid and do not be ashamed. But proclaim my truth and my love from the rooftops. That's what we're signing up for. That's our part, is to stand on biblical truth while we love those who disagree. We've lost that in our culture. To disagree is to hate. And when you lose that, you lose truth. But we can demonstrate to others and prove that to disagree is not to hate through the way we treat them by being uncompromising about the truth of Jesus' teaching while being unparalleled in the kindness and the affection that we have for others and for each other. Let's not forget what he said was, love one another as I have loved you. The church, the community... And the way we treat each other, not just the way we treat the people outside, but the way we treat the people inside, is a part of that stamp of authenticity. We are called out into the mess, into the brokenness, into the quagmire of the world system. And we need each other to be able to have the strength to do that. You've got to come back to the barracks and recharge your batteries with people who are also in the fight. Jesus is preparing the disciples for what they're going to face, and it is exactly what they faced. They went out and they loved and they served and they stood on the truth and they were kicked out of the synagogues. They were robbed. They were beaten. They were shipwrecked. They were left for dead, and they were killed because of their faith, all the while doing no harm anyone. And what happened as a result of their willingness to do this? They only changed the world. They only proved that God truly came and dwell among us. In a little backwater podunk country that was not politically significant, very small, very quiet, God came in the person of Jesus Christ. And he taught us love, and he sent us on a mission to carry that love to others. and it spread around the world. But that doesn't mean that the fight is over, or on the contrary, we are looking around the world, and we're seeing a resurgence of the world system and an argument, an idea that's being repeated over and over with examples given over and over, that the Bible is hate, that Jesus' followers are self-righteous and judgmental, and that the only true way to live in this world is to live for yourself. And so we are right in the middle of the same fight they were in, and we're not paying the price currently that they were paying, but there is a price to be paid. Jesus said to them next in John 16.1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. These people that you're trying to love are gonna be so deceived, they're gonna think they're doing God's will when they strike out against you. A good example of that was Saul, the Pharisee, who was persecuting, it says in Acts 9, that he was breathing threats and murder against the church. And he went to get papers from the Pharisees that would give him authority to go and kill more Christians. And they were like, pfft, sounds like a great idea. And as he was on the road to Damascus, he met the risen Jesus Christ, who said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul thought, He was killing Christians, and that was the will of God, until he met God, was forgiven, and was sent back out to give others the same forgiveness and the same love that he received and became the apostle Paul. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that when your hour comes, you may remember that I told you. I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. He's saying, look, I'm going to be taking off. I've been here with you to guide you through these situations, but you're going to be facing a situation, and when you stand in front of the magistrate, when you stand in front of the whipping post, and you start thinking, how could God be letting this happen? Remember, I told you this was going to happen. This does not mean I've forsaken you. If you're here this morning, and you've been hurt and offended and uh, you you know you were dragged here because your dad's here, and you know you're like I do this once a year, or maybe your kids dragged you here, or maybe it just so happens that you're here on Father's Day for some of the reason. We understand how you've been hurt. We understand how Christ has been misrepresented to you. The question that we would just ask for you, in all sincerity, in all truth, is: Are you sure? that you know what Jesus is about? Do you know what God of the Bible is like? Because what we need, what we desire, is for all people to make an informed decision, not based on the lies of the world system, not based on what people have said, but on what God has said. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, "'Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, "'and I will give you rest.'" Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you are struggling for meaning and you are struggling for purpose and you are feeling alone and you are wondering where is the love, it may be time to turn to God in your heart and ask Jesus to come into your life and begin the journey that so many of us have begun that is not an easy journey, but it's a joyful journey. It's a purposeful journey. And it's one that God invites all of us to. It doesn't matter in what condition you are. It doesn't matter what's happening in your life right now. You might be one of those people who are like, man, I can't go into a church because you know, I'd get struck by lightning right away. Right? God doesn't want to see me in his house You are in the right place, brother. You are with the right people because we all believed that about ourselves at one point until we finally realized this is exactly where God wants us to be because he's the father who's waiting for the long lost son, the long lost daughter to come home. That's the picture that he paints for those who are far from him. For the rest of us, what can we do? How do we live in the world system without being consumed by it? Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in John 17, but now I come to you and these I speak to the world so that they may have my joy and may, may, uh, made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but keep them from the evil one. He prays for us. He prays for all future disciples, all future believers. And he says, Don't take them out. Don't remove them from all the pain and the suffering. Keep them in the heart of it. But protect them from your enemies. What does that look like? How can you be in the world but not of the world? And how did Jesus do it? How can we do it? We have to come back next week. All the practical stuff is in part two. <laughs> yeah, God, we thank you for that. We thank you for who you are, that you are, you are not what we expected and you are not what we were told. You're so much better. You're so much more than that. We pray, God, for anyone here that uh, is hearing this for the first time or, or maybe understanding it for the first time. We just pray that they'll hear you knocking on the door of their hearts. And that they'll hear and understand the greatness of who you are in a very clear way. And we pray for the time that we spend here together this morning. We pray that um, we can have great love among one another and that you will be represented here among us. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.